Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, grab those and get them open to Mark chapter 10. We are excited to jump back into our study in the book of Mark this morning. I want to thank each of you for being here. I want to thank uh, Nick and Abby and Zach and Seth uh, for leading us this morning. Brandon and Grace and uh, a few more adult leaders and a whole bunch of our teens are off at camp this weekend. So it's like 38 of them away there. And so they stepped in this morning, did a great job. And and I want to thank you guys because the point of worship is congregational singing and you brought it today. Um, It was nice to hear all the voices. And so uh, we're grateful for that. If if, uh, you do not have a Bible, grab a black one in the seat back in front you get to page 892. Um, sorry, 897. You get to page 892, you'll be within five pages of where we are. If you get to page 897, you'll be right there in Mark chapter 10. And uh, that way you can follow along with us because uh, the topic of the day that Jesus addresses, it's, it's, I say this every week, but it's even more important that you hear it today, is that it's not our opinion that matters, right? But it's the opinion of the Word of God, the timeless, the timeless eternal Word of God that matters. And so we want you to be able to follow along with us this morning. And uh, it's always super rare, um, but it's really nice. Anytime my wife, Corinne, and I get time away to ourselves, right? Uh, it's, it's always like we look forward to those times, we cherish those times, but every time the same thing happens. The closer we get to that time ending, right, the closer we get to coming home, the more and more excited we are to see the girls. And so far, that feeling is shared by the girls. We'll see if that goes away in the future, right? But we returned home from a recent trip and the reunion was great, right? I got so many hugs from my six-year-old twins in such a short amount of time, right? And that night we were back to our normal routines. I was putting them to bed and, and it was just kind of, we it was just felt nice to be back in our normal routine. And Remy, as I was leaving the room, asked me for one more hug. And I was like, okay. And she kind of pulled me down and she whispered directly into my ear. And it's the worst. When she whispers in your ear, like the lips are right here and it tickles really bad, right? But she said, what she said was really sweet. She said, Daddy, I'm just so happy you're home. I will do anything you tell me to tomorrow. <laughs> now, how sweet is that, right? And so I started to pull back from the hug and say, well, that's really nice. And, but she wasn't done. She pulled me back in. And then she said, except for chores. I'm not going to do those. <laughs> so at six years old, she's already an expert at ruining the moment, Right? But there's a consistent question that we answer every day from infants to six-year-olds to seasoned adults, right? And the question is twofold. It is this. Who are we going to give authority to in our lives, and how much authority are we going to give them? For Remy, it was clear, right? She was willing to do whatever I asked, though I didn't believe that either, right? But not if I asked her to do chores. That's where my authority was going to end in her life, right? That line was very clear for her. Sometimes the line is just as clear for us, but we just wouldn't say it out loud. Right? I'll obey my parents, except, in, except over here in this area. I won't listen here, and I hope they won't ever notice. I'll do what my boss says until, you know, he or she isn't around or checking in on me, and then I'll just kind of do my own thing. Right? As followers of Jesus, we should strive for consistency and integrity in all that we do in the way that we live our lives. But our mistakes start compounding when we treat God this way. God, I love you. God, I will follow you. God, I'll do whatever you tell me, except, except with my thought life. I'm never going to repent of that. I'm never going to surrender that to you. God, I love you. I will follow you. I'll do whatever you tell me, except for my relationship with my boyfriend or girlfriend. You don't get to speak into that. God, I love you. I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you want in my life, except with my money. I get to decide. It's my money. I get to do what I want with it. 
except when it comes to where I live, except when it comes to sharing my faith, except when it comes to serving, except when it comes to standing for your truth, except when it comes to opening myself up to criticism or unpopularity, except when it comes to multiplying, whatever it is, God, you don't get to speak there. And I'm really excited today, and I'm, I'm thankful this morning for all that God did in our Advent series and all that he did in our Vision series, but today we get to do my favorite thing. Today we get to jump back in to our study in Mark, and there's nothing that I enjoy more than studying Jesus Christ. There's nothing I enjoy more than studying his actions and hearing his teachings. And today in Mark 10, what we're going to see is we're going to see a trap that is laid for Jesus. He's going to be asked a question about divorce, and the question is designed not really to get his stance on divorce. It's designed to get him in all kinds of trouble. And in a way that only he could, right? He not only answers the question, but he also in the process lays out God's design for marriage and teaches everyone there and all of us a lesson about authority and who it really belongs to. And so if you're here this morning and you've, you've experienced the pain of a divorce, or you're here and, you've married, and you're married and you've never went through a divorce, or you've never been married, whatever, it doesn't matter. There's something powerful in Jesus' answer to this question for all of us. And the heart of what Jesus will do in the passage cuts to the core of that twofold question, who am I going to give authority to in my life, and just how much authority am I going to give them? And so I'm going to invite uh, Ruth Peelman up this morning. She's going to be reading for us Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. And so if you have your Bibles open there, would you please stand with her uh, to honor the reading of God's scriptures this morning? Morning, Ruth. Good morning. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, he asked, not he asked, asked, (laughs) is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Thank you, Ruth. All right, if you have your Bibles open, please keep them there. You can have a seat. I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer, so let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the wisdom and brilliance of Jesus. We thank you for the chance just to sit under him this morning and to see how he handled this trap, to see how he handled this tricky question. And I pray that as, as we look at his answer, his spirit, God, that his grace, his mercy, his truth would take over this room and, and would soften any pain, would, would clarify any confusion, and just we, that he would rule the day today. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So I want to do a quick recap of Mark, what got us to this chapter. And I promise it'll be quick. I rehearsed this sermon, and it came in at 47 minutes, so I've had to cut a lot, all right? But Mark, Mark is uh, a story of Jesus' life, ministry, and resurrection, and death, right? And uh, the, the book of Mark begins with a, with a verse that just says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
right? And so Mark is an autobiography of Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection. And it's clear from the very first line, Mark wants his readers to know that Jesus is no ordinary person. He's God, right? And so what we're reading is, is about the account of when God came to earth. And, and all you need to know to this point, right, of the first nine chapters in Mark, is that Jesus started his earthly ministry, he traveled from town to town, performing miracles. He became, he's become very famous. Right? He's the biggest deal in his day. And as all rabbis did back then, he chose, uh, he chose disciples. And there was a whole group traveling with him, but he picked 12 specifically to get intense training from him, to be his students and apprentices. And he's been doing this for two and a half years by the time we get to Mark chapter 10. And there's two tensions, major tensions, that have been building throughout the book of Mark that we're going to see continue to build from here on out and eventually results in his death, right? And the first was just the view of the Messiah, right? The most popular view in his day was that the Messiah was this promised one sent by God and he was going to come and be an earthly king of Israel. He was going to make Israel great again, right? To borrow a term we hear a lot now, right? And, and he's going to establish them as a dominant nation and all the Jewish people would live their lives in prosperity and peace and wealth and it was going to be great. Problem is that wasn't God's view of the Messiah, that wasn't the plan that God had. And Jesus says, I, Jesus many times allowed people to identify him as a sight. And he says, no, I didn't come to reign. I came to suffer. I came to serve. And I came to die. And every time he tells people this, they have a problem with it, including his disciples. The second tension that's been building throughout the entire book is between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we're going to see this on display today. They, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, um, they, they hate Jesus. They hate him. I can't stress that more, right? They were used to all the fame and the recognition, the authority and power before he came. Not only that, he's not a fan of how they do things, and so he's publicly called them out and criticized them before, right? And so there, there's that tension between those two groups. And, and we get to Mark chapter 10, and, and what, what is happening in Jesus' life in Mark chapter 10 is he's making a journey to Jerusalem. Each town he stops in from Mark 9 on is, a, is one step closer to Jerusalem, right? And all these tensions will boil over in Jerusalem, and he's going to die on a cross. And in, in verse 1 of chapter 10, Mark tells that he arrives in Judea, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And, and crowds gather as they often did, always did when he came to a region or a town. And he begins to teach him. And that's where we find this exchange in verse 2. So Mark 10 verse 2 says, Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now that word that we translate in the English, test, that, that's not, the English translation there is not great. Right? Because this was more than a test. This test was an attempt to kill Jesus. And you might be thinking, whoa, chill, Brett. Surely it's not that dramatic. Well, it is. Because there's a couple things happening behind this question that you may not notice at first read. And there's two things that, that Jesus would know about, that these Pharisees definitely knew about, and everybody in the crowd would know about that make this such a loaded question. The first is this. There was a long-standing debate among Jewish people regarding divorce. And there were two schools of thought represented by two famous rabbis. And it basically came down to whether you were in Rabbi Shammai's camp or you, whether you were in Rabbi Hamel's camp. And Rabbi Shammai taught that divorce basically should be devoided, avoided at almost all costs. It was only allowed if a spouse was unfaithful and committed adultery. Rabbi Hamel taught that divorce was fully permitted in the law of Moses and should be allowed for almost any reason, including one time he wrote, even if a wife burns her husband's food. Seriously, that's something he wrote. 
Now, it should be noted in Jewish culture that only men could divorce their wives, right? Women, it's another instance of how women had almost no rights in that day. And at the core issue of the debate was, was a section in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, where Moses says, if a man is going to divorce his wife, he must write her a letter or certificate of divorce. And then he adds, if she remarries and her second husband also writes her a letter or certificate of divorce, she cannot go back and remarry her first husband. Now, that's just, that's all Deuteronomy says right there. And it's one of those many conditions in the Old Testament law that require a lot more context than just reading it for the first time to understand it. It leads, in fact, doing that leads to more questions than answers it provides. Which is why hundreds of years after Deuteronomy, followers of Judaism in Jesus' day are still debating it furiously. And if you've read the Bible, you know that the Jewish people in Jesus' day were totally chill and never overreacted to theological disputes at all. I'm glad that you caught that with sarcasm, right? And so they ask Jesus this question in front of this huge crowd, knowing whatever he says, he's about to tick off half of them. That's the point of the question. That's actually the least sinister point of the question. Right? That's devious enough, but there's something even more evil going on. Jesus, the most famous person in his day, is in front of a huge crowd, and where is he? He's in Judea. Judea just so happens to be where King Herod reigns. Anybody remember him? King Herod, in Mark 6, orders the death of John the Baptist. Does anybody remember why John was arrested and killed? Mark 6, for Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother's Philip, Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So just a real quick breakdown for you. Herod and Herod's brother's wife decide, well, we want to be together. Right? Even though this woman's already been married to Herod's brother, Herod, as king, can dissolve any marriage. He ends their marriage. He ends it in divorce. And then he takes her as his wife. And John the Baptist, who was the most famous prophet in his day before Jesus came, tells Herod, hey, you all shouldn't do that. Right? That's not law. That's not a good thing. It's not a good example you're setting. And Herodias hates John. This is Herod's wife. She hates John for this. And so she has, John, has Herod arrest John, and she bides her time and waits for the exact moment in which she forces Herod to give the order to kill John. All because John said that divorce you did wasn't right. And in Herod's region, in the shadow of Herod's palace, in front of a large crowd, they ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, what do you think about divorce? I mean, think about it. How much do you have to hate Jesus to bide your time and wait till he's here to ask that question? And what we see next is why it's impossible to study Jesus and not be impressed by him, whatever your belief or worldview. Because Jesus boldly defends and upholds God's design for marriage. The first thing he does is he puts the question back on them. Look at verse three. He replied to them, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send them away. And then, I, I mentioned to you before that Deuteronomy 24 is one of those things, one of those passages that's in the Old Testament law that's really hard to understand without context. Jesus in verse 5 gives us context. It's brilliant. Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. 
Now, I love this clarification from Jesus, right? This allowance in Deuteronomy 24 was, was not based on God's design, Jesus says. It was included because of the sin that was already rampant among the Jewish people. And what was happening is that married men would decide for whatever reason they just didn't want to be married to their wife anymore. And again, remember, women had almost zero rights back then. And so they were getting kicked out of their husband's homes with nowhere to go. And without a certificate of divorce, they were not free to remarry. And think about what that would do to them in a society which, which they couldn't find employment and they would, re, they would re, be relying on their husband's employment to just have food and shelter and clothing and things. And so without a certificate of divorce, they were not free to remarry and they would become outcasts. No one would want to help them. No one would be able to remarry them. They would be destitute and helpless and be stricken by poverty and then die. And so this provision was added to the Old Testament law, according to Jesus, because of that rampant sin, because of their hardness and hearts, to protect women and to make divorce actually harder. By adding legal steps, wives could no longer be dismissed on such an impulsive whim. And by granting her a full release, she would be freed to find security and love and acceptance elsewhere. And so the point that Jesus is making is this. Deuteronomy 24 is not God putting his approval on divorce or even encouraging divorce in light of it happening in the worst possible ways. This provision sought to restrain it and make it more difficult while also protecting women from just a terrible lot in life. Jesus is telling them here, your hearts towards women are so sinful and so hardened and so despicable, this provision had to be added to your law. Then what he does next is even more brilliant. He takes them back to the very beginning. Look at verse six. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So who created us male and female? Who established and ordained marriage? It's God. God is the designer. God is the creator. He alone, Jesus says, has the authority on the matter. And this is the design, right? That God has made human beings in his image and in his likeness. He's made them male and female, completely distinct and yet complementary to one another. And in marriage, a man and a woman leave their parents and they come together. They cleave, the man cleaves to his wife. They come together in one union. And marriage is both a spiritual and physical connection. It is spiritual in recognizing that God brought the two together and he's the original designer and establisher of marriage. And so the New Testament expands on this, that the marriage relationship should display a love and a mutual submission and a care that represents, that actually represents and reflects the relationship between Jesus and his church. It's a deeply spiritual connection, but it's also a physical connection in a way that's very set apart by God. Because it's in the confines of a married relationship that a man and woman become one flesh. And that act of sexual and physical intimacy and passion is reserved for marriage alone. And this act carries with it such a soul-level intimacy that it is to be protected and preserved and reserved just for husband and wife. And within that relationship, humans are told by God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so this entire concept is fully God's. 
He's the one who creates us either male or female. He's the one who created marriage. And if we truly follow his leading, he's the one who leads us to our spouse. And he gives us the gift of connection and intimacy in marriage at levels not reserved for any other relationship. And through our marriage, we can bring him glory, find the deepest levels of companionship, enjoy good gifts, and even be sanctified. And given the spiritual and physical connection of marriage, the Bible speaks of the only thing that can break it are irreversible, right? Irreversible physical acts. Death is an obvious one, right? If the spouse is no longer physically alive, then the other other is, is freed from that marriage. The other that is permitted by Jesus in Matthew 19 is infidelity. That this act carries such pain to it Right? Such, such betrayal that it is permissible. And hear that word. It's permissible by Jesus in the marriage, not mandated. Right? God's grace is so magnificent. There are couples who have worked through even this and have a flourishing marriage today. And I think that, that really represents the heart of the Lord. But, he, but again, he knows the pain is so deep that it's permissible. And then the third one, and I need to be honest and take a step back from the scriptures here, because this is me talking now, because the Bible doesn't address this, right, is physical abuse. The Bible has nothing in, no verses in there talking about physical abuse. But I think, I, I think that we can see, even from Deuteronomy 24, that God's heart is to protect and value and cherish women who want to hurt them, or from men who want to hurt them. And if a husband is abusing his wife... He has already so violently broken his vows to protect, protect, cherish, and keep her. And the reality, just the cold hard reality is this, that she's in danger. She's in literal danger. And, and often, if you've studied this at all, abuse only escalates. Right? There, there have been tragic stories I've read of in, in, in past church history where wives were told to stay with their husbands who were beating them because the Bible is against divorce and they ended up being killed by those husbands. And I just cannot believe that accurately represents the heart of the Jesus I know. If you are in danger, get to safety first, and then we can let the Lord work out the rest of the scenario. But the main, Jesus' main point is this. The point he's driving home, he says in verse 9, he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Right? He's saying God designed it. God set it up. God established it, only he gets to say, or he, only he gets to end it or say when it can be ended. We don't get to act like we have authority even over our own marriage, right? That belongs to him. And I want you to understand how radical this was of Jesus, right? Even in such, we think of first century Jewish culture as very conservative, right? But even in that conservative environment, this was a radical idea for them. The disciples asked Jesus about it later, and, and Mark kind of cleans that up for us. Matthew 19 tells us that when the disciples asked him about it later, that, that, that they basically say, well, if that's how it's going to be, Jesus, it's better just not to get married, Right? If I'm going to have to be tied to her the rest of my life, it's like, chill, guys. You know? I don't know if that's Peter and he was in a fight with his wife at the time or whatever, right? But, but Jesus' answer, when asked about it later, you know what he does? He doesn't soften it. He doubles down. He goes even firmer. Look at verse 10. He said to them, whoever, or verse 11, right? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. In verse 12, also if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, it's at this point that we have to hit pause. Because undoubtedly, around the room, emotions are escalating. And they're escalating because this isn't some passage, right, to you. This isn't some religious concept to you. This is your life. 
There's something in this topic that's speaking directly to something you went through and the pain involved in that. And no doubt, no doubt at all, right now, the enemy's trying to bring shame into it. Or maybe you're mad at Jesus for what he says here, mad at me for what I just said or whatever. I promise you, I promise you, if you hang with me, I'm gonna address all that in a moment. The last thing that I want to have happen today is to have guilt and shame heaped upon you, right? That doesn't align with the heart of Jesus. I want to uphold God's design for marriage and stand behind it just as Jesus did. But I also want to ensure that you fully know his grace. Before we get to that, we have to point this out because I think this is the overarching theme of Jesus' answer. Jesus is actually teaching us about authority here. I want you to think back to the question he was asked and just drop the idea of divorce for a second and just think back to the question he was asked. The motivation for the question was to trap Jesus and get him in trouble. But the question was basically this, whose authority are you gonna side with, Jesus? Are you gonna side with Rabbi Shammai and all his followers? Are you gonna side with Rabbi Himel and all those who agree with him? Or will you cower under the threat of Herod's authority and power? And where did Jesus steer his answer to? Absolutely none of them. Because for Jesus, authority simply does not have its origins in human beings. He points them back to the very beginning. He points them back to God, the sovereign, ruling creator of everything. There was one authority higher than the rest, and that belongs to the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and the originator of everything. His is the only voice and the only opinion and the only influence that matters. And so whether you are married or not, whether you've been divorced or not, whether whatever your lot in life is, Jesus is speaking directly to each of us, teaching us all a valuable lesson about authority, and that authority belongs to God first and always. And he points to God's design, not because it's one of the designs. He doesn't point to God's design because it's the best of the designs. He points to God's design because that is the design, hard period stop. That what God has joined together, let no one separate because they aren't God. Now let's take a moment and talk about the implications of this, right? Let's just ask the question, what does this mean for us? And first, I just need to make a really honest confession, right? If you look at a room this size, I cannot address each specific life scenario that's represented in this room. And so if you want to know how God's design for marriage and his stance in divorce or any of those things directly apply to your life and your situation that you're living out right now, and you're unclear on that, we as a church, we as a staff, we're here for you. And we'd love to sit you down. We'd love to go through the scriptures together. And that's our promise. We won't tell you what we think. We won't give you our opinion. We'll just point to you what the Bible says about your situation and encourage you in that way. And so as I talk about applying and navigating this truth from Jesus, that's, that's where I want to start. My encouragement to you is this. Find out how the scriptures speak to your situation and then apply it. And so on that slide, there, there's, there's, some, there's some chapters we've listed for you there. Genesis 2, Matthew 19, Mark 10, 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. All of these deal directly with marriage, divorce, God's design for marriage, all these things, right? And so whether you're not married yet, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're remarried, whether you're in a marriage where there's uh, one believer and one unbeliever, on and on, God speaks to every one of those scenarios in his words in those chapters, and so rather than going down the list today, right, and, and reading all that, like, I, I want to put the impetus on you. Write those down. Take a picture of them, whatever. Search the scriptures and ask God to bring clarity to your situation. 
And by the way, I went too fast that section because we're about to change slides. Ask me after and I'll give you all the chapters again. Second is this. I think we all, in light of Jesus' teaching, need to elevate our view of marriage. Marriage is the most sacred, most intimate, most cherished relationship that two human beings can ever enter into. So treat it that way. Treat it that way. Marriage was designed by God and given to us by God as a gift for human flourishing. So treat it that way. If you're not yet married, don't act like you are. Don't live together, don't sleep together, don't play married without that commitment. If you want to do all those things, fine, get married, then you can do them. There's a vast preponderance of evidence that shows the less people revere and protect marriage before entering into it, the, the higher, higher, higher the rate of divorce and failure is. Because God's design works. What culture thinks, what's seen as acceptable by others, what makes the most sense financially, none of that matters. God's design matters. When Jesus asked about it, he took us back to the designer because his is the only opinion that counts. And he says to keep the marriage bed pure. So the question for you is this, will you give him his his rightful authority in that area of your life? If you are married, honor, protect, and cherish that relationship, especially in those seasons of life when it won't feel like the honeymoon anymore. And if you haven't gone through one, you will. Because all relationships take work. They all have their ups and downs. And if you're, if you're out there this morning, you're saying, I don't, I, I maybe haven't even told them this or heard this, but I, I don't even feel like I love my spouse like I used to. Then here's what you do. Act like you love them. Treat them like you love them. Serve them like you love them. Honor them like you love them. Seek to bless them like you love them. Pray for them like you love them. You know what you'll come to find? You'll come to find that you begin to love them again. And if you're struggling, don't hesitate to seek out help, right? Talk to a counselor, talk to someone who can speak into it and pray for it because your marriage is worth fighting for. It absolutely is. So don't throw in the towel, don't quit, and unless you're in danger, fight for your marriage. It was great advice Corinne and I got from uh, the couple that was doing our premarital counseling, the guy that married us, and they just said, don't, in your marriage, don't even tell jokes about divorce, Don't even joke like, well, if you do that, I'd leave you and then laugh. Because even in jest, they said, just expressing the idea will give it credence. And so in your home, never mention the word, never talk about it, never joke about it, never even consider it as an option. It's the best advice we ever ever got on that front. If you've been divorced, I'll have more to say on that in a moment. But on this front, I would tell you this. Don't let that experience cause you to lower your view of marriage. The design is good. Your experience was not. But if you take that pain to God and surrender your life to him, you'll find that he can redeem anything. And I mean that. He can redeem anything. So keep your view of marriage elevated. Thirdly, do not use this as a weapon against yourself or others. We've got to be clear on this, right? God is not upset with. He's not disappointed in. He's not angry at anyone who's experienced divorce in their past. That is not his character. He designed marriage the way that he did. He designed it as a lifelong, till death do we do us part commitment because he loves us and because he's trying to protect us from it, right? He designed it that way because what he does hate, this is what God does hate. God hates what divorce does to people he loves because it's a lifelong struggle regardless. 
the ramifications of it, the chaos it brings, the discord it brings, the stressors it brings, the soul-level pain it causes, they remain long after the divorce or remarriage. And you who've been through it know exactly what I'm talking about. And if today's passage brings up hurtful, painful reminders for you, I'm, I'm so very sorry. I, I can assure you that was not my intent and definitely not Jesus's. His intent is this to warn others in the hopes of keeping them from the same hurt and struggle that you've experienced and to encourage any couples that are in a struggle to persistence and endurance and to elevate marriage in the, light, in the eyes of all. And to any, right, I would tell you this, to any to whom this passage brings pain, what I would tell you is let your pain drive you to Jesus. You will find him to be amazingly gracious. And more than that, you'll find him to be all that you need. And this is why. This is why we cannot use God's standard as a weapon because Jesus doesn't. None of us are clean. None of us are innocent. None of us are holy. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard it that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We're all adulterers. James 2, forever keeps the entire law and yet it stumbles at one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. We're all guilty of breaking the entire law. There's not one of us in here who is innocent or spotless. No matter what our story, no matter what our background in this one area is, we're all guilty of breaking God's law. We're all guilty of falling short of his standard. And even, right, even if your story to this point isn't ideal, right, even if your life in this moment does not line up with God's design, you don't need to drown in shame or guilt or apathy this morning. Every time, every time you fall short of God's good standard, see that as an invitation to run to the grave and mercy of God. First John 1 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then, then having experienced his grace and forgiveness, then take the steps of obedience necessary to align with his design and commands. But never use your past failings as a weapon. This is not some scarlet letter you have to wear the rest of your life. Don't treat your sin and your story as if they are reasons that God can't or won't use you anymore. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of both the gospel and how God uses people. You know what we're called to be in the New Testament? We're called to be trophies of his grace, not trophies of our righteousness, which praise God for, because none of us would ever be able to serve him or do anything for him. And lastly, as we should do with all things, put God in his rightful place. All right, so Jesus laid out God's design for marriage. Maybe, maybe there's some way this morning that you're outside of that design. Some way that you aren't right now following God's commands. Maybe there's another area in your life that you know you're violating his command and living in sin it has nothing to do with marriage. Maybe there's an attitude that you haven't surrendered. Maybe there's a calling that you've ignored. Maybe there's an idol that you've yet to kill in your life. Whatever it is, I'm going to bet that right now the Holy Spirit is revealing things to you and that we have a decision to make right now. We can act like we didn't hear any of this today. We can act like God isn't revealing anything. We can act like he isn't telling me anything. We can quench the Spirit. We can block out what he's saying. We can keep trying to put asterisks in our Bible and say, well, this doesn't really apply to me. And we can continue in our disobedience, heading straight towards more and more self-inflicted wounds. Or we can run to God in our brokenness, in our repentance, in our humility, 
and be covered fully in his love and mercy and grace and be cleansed of all of our unrighteousness because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we can respond in obedience and take steps to align our lives the way that he has designed and will be pleasing to him. And when we fall short again in the future, and you will, we all will, we can repeat that cycle of confession and repentance and pursuit of obedience again and again and again and again because our God's grace and love and mercy do not run out. It all comes back to that twofold question, right? Will we give God his rightful authority in our lives and just how much authority are we gonna give him? And I believe that you all know this to be true. He deserves all of it. And so we're gonna give you some moments today. Maybe, maybe you just need some time to take your pain directly to Jesus, right? Maybe there's some way that you're outside of his design and you need to go to him in repentance this morning and, and commit to stepping into obedience. Maybe there's nothing in your life that is even relevant to this major topic today, but you know, right? You know that you're a guilty lawbreaker of everything and you just need to sit and bask in his mercy and grace and be grateful for it today. Whatever it is, run to the Lord right now.